Shrouded in Tacoma in 2015, Brotalion is the brainchild of three Army aviators and fitness enthusiasts who wanted to promote community among their fellow pilots. As the company grew, founders Kyle Kilroy, Spencer Payne, and Brett Coral discovered that their community needed other things, too, from apparel that represented them to relevant fitness plans, professional opportunities, and financial support. The Brotalion team created a podcast-driven mentorship program, a strong social media network, and tailor-made workouts. They also developed the Blue Skies Foundation, a philanthropic arm dedicated to providing post-mishap support for the Army aviation community and their families. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Raven Report podcast. I'm Chaplain Sanders, and I have some uh, very interesting uh, folks here here with me today. Um, like uh, Payne, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? You should be the most uh, familiar to people that may be listening. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Spencer Payne, um, co-founder of Brotalian and the Brotalian Blue Skies Foundation. Really appreciate you uh, giving us the opportunity to come chat today, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nick, go ahead. Hey, I'm Nick Yates. I uh, am our director of media, but work a lot in the operational side. And uh, I've been with Brutalian in one capacity or another since uh, 2019 now. Yeah, so been doing it for a little bit. So how long has Brutalian been around? I mean, it all started with a group chat, quite honestly. Um, our first duty station after flight school, uh, myself and Brett and a couple other buddies were just sort of gravitated toward each other. We all liked the same stuff, which was basically like flying, working out and drinking beer on the weekend. Uh, and our leadership nicknamed us the Brotalian. Um, and that was the name of our group chat where we made plans and bitched about work and whatever else. And um, that was kind of the origin of it. Um, one day we were all doing one of the set activities, drinking beer, watching football, whatever. And um, I think it was Brett. He was like, hey, you know, Brotalian's actually a really cool name. We should make like a tank top or something to work out in, uh, just like for ourselves, just, you know, whatever, do something. And so, uh, we had a friend who was a graphic designer and she sketched up some stuff for us. And like, we made a couple of t-shirts and a couple of people saw them and liked them. And they were like, okay, that's kind of cool. You know, maybe there's a potential there. Um, and so as that idea grew and a couple more people were like, oh, that's kind of a cool design. We like that. We said, why don't we just go ahead and incorporate and like trademark the name just in case. And so we did that in 2015, um, but we really didn't start like trying to grow the business or anything until way after that. Um, it really just started with social media. That was early on in the Instagram days before you have all like the high production value stuff that you see today. It was like, Hey, look at me on Friday. I cooked this steak and like a picture of your plate, right. you know? Um, and so I say that to point out that like, there wasn't a lot of aviation content, um, on Instagram. And so that's how we really started to grow. Sort of the community and the tribe was just pictures of at that time, really just ourselves, like going out and flying and messing around with helicopters and stuff. And started to grow and other people would send us our stuff and we would share it. Um, and that, that's, you know, what grew the social media. And then we just sort of recognized an opportunity. It was like, we don't have anything 
to wear that was like, Hey, I'm a pilot and I'm proud of it. So to speak, you know, everything was like super serious or, uh, just kind of cringy with regards to how we typically operate as pilots. We just kind of maybe perhaps have a different mentality than some other folks. And, um, just didn't feel that we had anything that represented our passion for flight and stuff. And so that's how we started doing like, okay, well, let's, you know, figure this out and start doing some t-shirts and stuff. And, you know, fast forward a few years, it's, it's grown immensely since that. And we do custom apparel and stuff as well for military and law enforcement organizations and stuff as well. And, um, you know, the for-profit is a whole, I'm sorry, the not-for-profit is a whole other beast in addition to that. So I don't want to like ramble for too long. I can talk about this stuff in as much detail and as length as you want, or, you know, I don't want to mess with your flow or how much your, your listener base wants to hear, but yeah, it's, it's interesting on multiple fronts because, um, I mean, so we don't have anybody that, that, um, you know, can, can really talk aviation very well. So that's interesting. The other kind of part of it is that, um, y'all are social media based and we've recognized that, um, social media is really good for a lot of things, recruiting being one one of the big ones. Um, and then, uh, also for just professional development. And, uh, so we've had like some, like some really good, uh, talks on here with, uh, some pretty heavy hitters that is kind of explaining like the way they see things from their point of view. Um, so knowing that background, it's pretty interesting so that like so you have how many people kind of just get started on the on the group chat yeah i mean the group chat was just how we got the name um as far as the company when we incorporated there was three of us as far as like equity holders in the business now there's just two um nick was actually our first full-time employee that we brought on and outside of me and nick um which was a really incredible experience to be able to like reach out to a friend and a member of the team as he was transitioning from the army and be like, Hey, do you want to come work for us? And like, you know, we're a lean startup, so we're not exactly like rolling in it by any means, but afford him like the ability to eat. It's a really cool experience to be able to like help provide that for somebody. And that's, you know, one of our big goals as we continue to grow and scale is to help recruit other people from the community in particular aviation, because that's our roots and the community that we serve. I mean, like, Hey, you know, if you're done flying or fixing aircraft and stuff, hopefully we can find a place for you here on this team. Um, And you can continue to work with like-minded people and, and serve a purpose from, you know, ideally an organization that you're proud to have been a part of. Right. What, uh, when did y'all go to uh, flight school? Uh, 2013 to 2015. Okay. My years were the same. 2013, 2015. What did you, what uh, airframe did you graduate with? We were all 60s, all 60 guys. <laughs> I mean, it's the most, everybody gets a 60 slot, I feel like. So unless you're like number one, which is definitely not me. Um, but yeah, everybody um, on the team that comes from the aviation um, demographic is a 60 driver. Right, right. Or was a 60 driver. Right. Did, did y'all go through, uh, that would have been right about the same time that they were killing the 58. Mm-hmm. It actually yeah. got uh, killed the, the selection before mine. I was pretty set yeah. on on selecting the, the selecting the 58. And it's, it's funny that Spencer says that. And it's true. Um, kind of at the time we were going through, I, I selected in 24, like late 2014. And at the time, the national guard was losing all of their Apaches. And when they, when they were transitioning those Apaches all over to active duty, they started tagging quite a few like full classes with 64s. And they had told us like months prior, they're like, you're going to be a 64 pilot because there were three or four consecutive classes that were 
100% 64s. That's all they had because they had to start backfilling those slots. And so I convinced I'd already wanted to fly 60s, but at the end of the day, I was like, you know, I'll fly a trash can if that's, you know, what I'm given. I, I won't know any different. And I think that's the biggest thing is like, you know, you, regardless of what airframe you fly, 90%, I would say probably more than that, 99% of us don't know anything about the other airframe because we haven't flown it. There's, there's very few people outside of, you know, a, a couple unicorn battalion commanders that have flown in special operations communities and different things that have, you know, flown almost every aircraft in the inventory. But um, we kind of fill that gap, at least on the team through our ambassadors and our community, because while we're all 60 pilots and everything, we're still able to connect with all of those other airframes through the people who interact with the community. And so that's been really beneficial to us. Um, and also a big learning experience for us as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Get, speaks to the, oh, we had, um, I think, it, who was it on here? Oh, it was uh, uh, a guy named Habitual Line Crosser. Have y'all seen him? The, he's an influencer, does uh, air defense artillery stuff. Anyways, he was he was on and he was talking about how um, social media had, had actually made him network out beyond kind of like the silo of the army that he was in. And because of that, he'd actually learned a lot and was able to help other people learn a lot. Because there's like, I'm a, I, I was a, a 58 crew chief infantryman turned chaplain. And, and so uh, like, I had, I know those worlds, but I knew nothing about air defense artillery. artillery. And so uh, that was really, really interesting. So it's kind of interesting to see you guys kind of having the same experience, but cross airframes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you, Speak to more of that. I mean, like, because I, I see on your page, you've got like, you know, even foreign militaries that, that are, uh, that are, you know, showcased on there, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, man. I mean, social media for all of its, for all the negative light and stuff that it gets. And I, I by all means, I have plenty of issues with it myself. Um, it's a necessary beast in these days, but there's still a lot of value in it as well. And you want to talk about like the network and Brett's the other founder and he's, he does all our sales and marketing and runs the social media page and stuff. So if you're, you know, interacting with the Instagram page, it's him that's responding to your DMs and stuff. And I did a, um, my last rotation when I was on active duty, I did a BAO job at seventh group. And the biggest thing that I did was like, get those guys aircraft for whatever type of training events and stuff they had coming up in particular, they struggle with it down there because they didn't have an, an army installation where they had a cab that they could foster a relationship with. It was an air force base and working with the air force is a pain in the ass. So um, I would reach out to Brett and like, Hey dude, you know, anybody in the national guard, like in Florida or surrounding States and stuff. And he would shoot me contact information and stuff. And it turned into a network of people that I could be like, Hey, we'll pay you money. TDY stuff. You can come down here and, you know, fly some group guys around so they can help them get after their training falls and stuff. And so it was cool to be able to leverage you know, the network that was built through social media and people interacting and, um, you know, sharing information and stuff over a, a common interest. Yeah, it's, it is pretty fascinating. So like, um, we have a, we have several company commanders that, that are pretty, um, they're, they're very aviation friendly. We try to do as many like air assaults and stuff as, as we possibly can. Um, whenever, if you were to, to, from coming from that perspective, if you were to speak to them on how to engineer training plans to not only include aviation, but also include it in a way that's relevant to what we think the modern battle, battlefield will look like, what, what the next flight would, be, would look Nick, like. I'll let you take that one. Yeah. yeah like so, so it's, it's actually a really good point. And it's something that, um, you know, a little bit of my background, I spent five years at Fort Bragg in an air assault company. And then when I came to originally Fort Campbell, I was in the command and control company, but, or VIP, whatever, but we never 
we very rarely, I should say, did that. Most of the time we backfilled and, and still did assault missions. But what I would say is if, if you're that company commander or even a battalion S3 or in the three shop and you're trying to get aviation involved, probably the first step is one, you know, I, I every every unit has a different, you know, mission approval process in terms of how that unit reaches out the channels that it has to go through at some, at some bases, it goes all the way up to division and then all the way back down. And then, you know, the aviation brigade decides who gets it, whatever that might be. But as soon as that unit identifies that they want to do that, put in the air mission request. Once you have that air mission request, instead of what, what we see most often is you have, you know, there, there's the whole planning process and we don't have to dive into that, but what ends up happening is, we abbreviate it because everybody's busy and everybody has, you know, on the aviation side, we've got on any given week, two to three AMRs or over the course of a month, just, you know, exercise after exercise. And on the ground side, it's no different, you know, whether it's ranges or whatever other things are going on. And very seldom do we make the time to get together and not just plan what we want to do. Because honestly, that's, I hate to say the easy part, but on both sides, once we're to that point, most of the, most of the big planning's done, you know, the ground side did their ground tactical plan. Cool. We know that they're probably going to be on a training area. That's pretty small. So for us, it's not difficult, but what's difficult is when we try to take those same practices and go to a CTC rotation or go overseas to do it in an environment that is not the back 40 at the base that we're at. And so kind of the, probably the most successful thing I saw has been, and actually it's been at both places, but it started, or at least the first time I experienced it was at Fort Bragg. And they actually had an air assault planners course where they would take, you know, everybody from squad. I think the lowest was about a platoon sergeant, you know, you know, somewhere in that experience level up through platoon leaders, company commanders, and really the people who the, honestly, the best people to have there are those S3 airs and those assistant S3s who are probably the ones actually doing a lot of the battalion level planning and they sit down with, you know, pilot and commands and people at the aviation unit for three days or four days or however long that, you know, that course might be blocked out for. And it's a deep dive into the reality of, you know, that air assault planning process. And I think that the biggest thing that, and, it, and we're guilty of it in aviation. A lot of times we'll send junior people to the meetings because all of your senior, you know, all of your senior pilots are, tasked out with whatever jobs they have. And that's probably the completely wrong answer because a lot of the times, while it's important for those junior guys to learn how to teach what we do, they may not always have the right approach or just the knowledge base yet in their careers to be able to effectively advise people who are creating those plans on how we should be doing it that actually translates to the real operational environment. Because, you know, and, and I won't dive too far down the rabbit hole. There's so many things that we do in, in training like 10 ship air assaults and all these massive things that when we actually look at, you know, a modern day environment, we probably wouldn't be doing in the same way that we're doing it at home. But the only way to really affect that is to have, you know, your right people. So honestly, if I was a company commander doing that and I'm interfacing with an aviation unit, I would ask to talk to a senior IP and their aviation mission survivability officer and get advice from those two people on, hey, you know, how do we create this training plan so that it is the most realistic training plan as we would actually be operating if we ended up over in Eastern Europe or, 
you know, a near peer type of environment, which is what we're looking at. That, that would be, that would be my piece of advice to them. You know, I think that's really good because um, I didn't realize how different the planning processes were until um, I became, you know, a, a battalion staff officer in an infantry battalion after having grown up in aviation primarily. I mean, I did a time in infantry, but I was a team leader, like just out in the field doing the thing. And um, I remember aviation, it was just like, it was like, here's, the, you know, we got to go here, we have to do that. And it's just very linear. Whereas with um, the whole MDMP cycle that, that a lot of the infantry guys get into, it's a lot more detailed. And there's a lot of assumptions that get made because they're all infantrymen. So they don't know a whole, you know, a lot of things that are, that are going on. So they just kind of assume that like, oh, well, this train would be good for this, or this train would be, be you know, bad for that. And I even saw that there are past drill, they're, they're looking at like, okay, well, if we're, uh, you know, fighting who, uh, whatever make-believe country we're calling it now, but it's, it's supposed to represent China, uh, you know, like, this is how things are going to go. And then there was a point where they uh, they started to, to talk about, you know, using aviation assets in there. And um, you started to to see a lot of, not, I don't want to say ignorance, it's not, that's going to kind of has a, like a, a negative connotation, but just like people just don't know. They've never worked around helicopters before. Yeah. And um, it, it like, so having somebody like that, that you could call up and just kind of talk to, like this is what we're thinking about doing. What do you think about that? Would probably be really, really beneficial, I would think. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's relationship-based is always the best way to start something. Um, I would say too, because you're in the guard, right, Brandon? Yep. Yeah, so aviation in the guard is a way friendlier beast than working with an actual cab on the active duty side because it, it can be significantly more relationship based. So if you get the right contact information from a warrant or a PL or a company commander or whatever in the guard, you can pretty much coordinate directly with them. Um, and then they can kind of push it up and like, hey, fill this out for me this way. And then they'll send it up to their chain of command and get the approval for the AMR and stuff and continue planning with you. It's not like the appropriate way to do it, but it's more of a get shit done mentality because similar, if you want to flip the script to the issues that the seventh group guys are having with getting air assets, very often guard guys not being on a, typically on a major military installation. I know there's a couple exceptions to that. They have difficulty getting good ground customers. Um, and so there's value in us being able to go through that 96 hour planning process with the ground force commander and talk through our the different briefs and stuff that have to occur and everything. So that's value that you're able to provide to them. I'll say one thing I know, and, and I don't, I'd like to preface this too. Like Nick is really the aviation professional in the room. I had limited experience at like an actual operational unit level. Um, but one thing that I witnessed when I was flying a little bit, and then you'll hear guys talk about too, is like, for to be beneficial for the guys flying, it can't just be a joyride um, because we get what's beneficial for us is working through our planning process, doing a couple of those key briefings, and then ultimately managing that flight and managing that time on target so that we can get guys practice, so that we can train up new PCs, so that they can get used to doing that in the flight lead and AMC type positions. And if the PZ is three doors down from the LZ, I can't manage a flight of four aircraft and get there plus or minus 30 seconds because I could walk over there in 20 minutes or whatever. And so that's some of the knowledge I think that would be beneficial for educating like junior leaders on the ground and stuff. It was like, and I, and I understand you can often be hamstrung with, if you're doing it on the installation, you only have so much real estate to work with, but I mean, you can get creative and stuff too. There's all sorts of little airports and stuff outside the base that they can go, hey, you know what? I know it kind of sucks, but your infantry guys, and that's part of the deal. 
we're going to bust your ass out there and you're going to stage out there for the PC and the helicopters are going to come out there and pick you up and then they'll fly you back to your LZ on the installation. Creative thinking and stuff like that so that we actually get the ability to manage at least, you know, 30 to 40 minutes of flight time with some different things that can be injected on there to get there on time is what's beneficial for the pilot side of the house. And that's not, and again, it's, it's not an ignorance thing. Like you don't know what you don't know. And I don't know really what the right answer is to bridging that knowledge gap, but I think you could tie it back to relationship bases. And like, once you find somebody like Nick was talking about, like a senior IP or an answer or whatever, just be candid with them and be like, Hey, we want to get aviation training for our guys. What do we need to do to make sure that you're getting value out of the exercise instead of being like, Hey, we want you to do an air assault so we can get our guys to go to from point A to point B. Cause we all know it's just going to be a joy ride. And like, you guys right. will have a good time and we won't necessarily get any great training value out of it. That, that makes sense. So like, um, can you tell us like what, like when you're talking about like trying to get training value for your pilots, for your crews and things like that, what are the things that, that are hard for them to get? Like what kind of value can we bring to the, to the table to basically sell ourselves to the aviation guys that, to make us a good ground customer? So what I would say is, when you look at the air assault planning process, I mean, one, I, from, a, from a pilot perspective, most of the time the pilots are expecting to show up to that initial planning conference with really, and they don't expect to come out of it with much of anything other than like a gen general number of people, kind of what the ground customer wants to do. But in all reality, if, if the ground side takes the time to identify like the whole scenario, or at least a a framework of the scenario they want to work through and an often overlooked component, especially when you're starting to, when you're talking, maybe a platoon or a company size is they never go talk to the S2 like at all. And for us, especially with so much emphasis, and, and I'll, I'll preface this with saying us operating in a near peer environment, like let's say China or the equivalent is, is a, a beast that we are still working through how, how that's going to work and what that really looks like, because thing, it totally changes the game in terms of the distance that we'll have to travel, the enemy that you're facing, their capabilities, all of that. And most of the time at a ground battalion, like, you know, a ground unit, your S2 obviously is going to have at least a little bit more knowledge than a lot of other people. And if they don't, they have the tools to be able to attain that knowledge. And so then what you get is honestly, and it really benefits both sides. You're going to come out with a better, you know, a battalion S2 shop uh, that is supporting their companies, which is their job, as well as a uh, battalion S2 that now understands the needs of aviation and the things that aviation is going to be looking for, um, which is where that's why I mentioned the AMSO or an IP or someone a little bit more senior, they can go sit down with a platoon leader or a company XO along with that S2 and be like, hey, these are the things that I need to know to be able to effectively do my job. But then the benefit for us on the return side and how we get value out of that is now when we go back, rather than just saying, hey, we're flying from point A to point B, now I can actually template out these threats and have our pilots plan against those threats which adds a completely different dynamic and a totally different thought process to how we plan in terms of primary alternate routing, you know, what, whether you're using emissions control and radio, you, like all, all of that now comes into play. And so a lot of times what we see is 
kind of a generic, oh, if you fly under 100 feet, you're clear of anything, and that's the S2 brief. And it's, it's not very conducive because it doesn't force planning on the aviation side. So, you know, I, I think really th those, those are the big components in, in what we look at to gain something out of it is, you know, length of flight, you know, enough time to be able to effectively work through an actual scenario, but then is, you know, a, a good templated scenario. And it doesn't have to be anything crazy because even on the pilot side, even, you know, at Fort Campbell, home of aerosol and all this stuff, like you still have to do a crawl, walk, run, because it's a whole nother component that a lot of times builds discussion in the cockpit as to, okay, well, why are, why are we doing that? Or why are we not doing that? And that's where you really start to gain the aviation side. And then the other big component of that, when you start to add links to the flights, even if you're going, you know, three miles away from where you picked them up, if you can lengthen out those flights, your pilots are going to start getting a lot more uh, practice at fuel management and all those other critical components to be able to conduct those missions as they would actually have to out in the real world. Okay. Like that, those are all like really good points to, to, to definitely uh, pass on. Um, there's something that you kind of brought up that I do want to pick up on. Um, so like you said that aviation is currently trying to wrangle um, the, the realities of fighting in a, a near peer environment. Uh, you know, we come from like 20 years worth of, uh, you know, like fob hopping and, and things. You just get up to a certain altitude. You don't really have to worry about a whole lot. Um, what's like, what does that big hairy problem look like? And what are some of the, like the concerns, the thought processes, the strategies that, that are going into that? So some of them might, so obviously we're not going to dive down certain rabbit holes, but, um, right. you know, the, the big one is just the presence of what, well, let me back up. One is changing how we're going to fly. Um, obviously, when you know Iraq first kicked off, everybody was flying super low, most of, mostly because you know in the early 2000s there were still a lot of surface-to-air threats. You know, in the initial invasion of Iraq, there are videos out there that you can watch, even of F-15s getting engaged by surface-to-air missiles, and and they're pretty wild. But then, as the you know as the war progressed, mostly with small arms fire RPGs. That was what shifted, you know, everybody to start flying high, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so now we're forcing people back low. And with that, um, there's a couple of different things that, that come into play. One is proficiency. Um, you get a whole lot of people who now are either retired or are moving out or are at the battalion and brigade level and are actively in the companies. So that experience level you know, at flying low to the ground, multi-ship, you know, zero loom, all of those things that uh, pose, you know, just an additional stress factor while you're still managing and doing all those other things. Uh, that's a skill set. And unless it's practiced, you know, that that's something that is lost. Um, and it, it does take a lot of time and, and practice to be able to do that. The second thing when you're when you're looking at some of these newer technologies is that um, it, you know, everything with how we operate, uh, is pretty much a cat and mouse game, right? We come up with a solution to whatever the threat is. And when you're dealing with near peer adversaries, they come up with a counter solution. And so it's a continual, you know, solution. It's a continual cat and mouse as to cool. There's a problem. We solve it. Now we have a new problem because, you know, they, they know they're, they, it's, I, I think that the, the hardest part is now you're dealing with, with adversaries that have near intelligence capabilities and the things that we do. 
And so that's probably one of the biggest issues is like, okay, well, one, we're, I don't want to dive into the antiquated systems, but the entire army or, you know, military, there's a lot of antiquated systems and it doesn't take long for them to become antiquated because of that cat and mouse game. And so then you're having to wait on the new technologies to come out that can assist us. And it's kind of that continual process of, okay, well, you know, we can come up with X, Y, or Z maneuvers that may or may not, you know, be successful. But the reality is that we can test things all day out at China Lake, um, but we can't necessarily replicate the exact situation that we might find ourselves in, in, a, in whatever, you know, environment that we might be in, whether that's a mountainous environment in Asia or back into a desert, like we, we don't know. And so those are the problems that, that you're working through is, you know, you, right now, I, I think the, I think the solutions are very much, um, it's very much a drawing board and, and we're working through things on the drawing board and they're continuing to test and test and test because really, even though, you know, for probably, you know, we've, we've been saying it for years, you know, the next fight's going to be a near peer fight, but really until the last couple of years, there hasn't been this massive shift over into, okay, now we really, this is the main focus near peer, you know, near peer fights. And this is what we're focusing on. Aside from the technology standpoint, I think that the biggest hurdle to jump, probably not just for aviation, but across the board is the old school mentality because a lot of your senior leaders were, you know, they were, they grew up in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so everything they know is counterinsurgency. And while I, I think at this point, the majority of them have pretty much latched on to most of the ideas of how we're going to fight, you know, in a decisive action environment and all of that kind of thing. But I would say that the doctrine isn't there yet um, because we don't really know what that's going to look like yet. A lot of it, um, a lot of it's all obviously based off of scenarios that we think and have created based off of what we're seeing. Um, you know, I'll use Ukraine as a prime example. When Ukraine kicked off, it's changed quite a few things across the board, probably for everybody, because it's the first pretty much, you know, peer-peer war that's happened in a very long time. And we're seeing on live display via social media and, and everything else, you know, what tactics look like, what things work and don't work. And so it's an interesting opportunity uh, for not just us, but everybody's watching, you know, in that case uh, to see how, you know, how this looks and, uh, and to try to learn from it. So I, I don't know if that answered your question. And No, it, it does. It's just, I don't know that there is an answer to the question um, because you're right. It, you're trying to look into like a crystal ball and be like, well, what's the next war look like? And I think if we could have figured that out a long time ago, we might, there might not be any wars now. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Like a, Ukraine's an interesting one because they, uh, so like our, our brigade got tasked with like creating like an LPD series. And I've been like reviewing some of the stuff that, uh, that, the material that comes down and one of the the first kind of assertions is that like modern warfare has basically like in, infinite depth there's just like there is no like you can't really protect against anything nothing is safe everything is exposed and um uh one of our, our pilots that actually had written for our, our brigade uh substack had, had basically said the same thing is that like you know we're coming from a from like from the GWAT where everybody had fuel all right and this is something i'd never thought about before that like you could land at any fob Get, you know, like, yeah, it, it or far out wherever and get rearmed, refueled, and, and go out again. 
in this type of scenario, if we're thinking about we're fighting like, you know, in like the Spratly Islands or some random place like that, they're very well may, may not be fuel. So then like, so all of a sudden, like now how, like fuel management becomes like this, like really, you know, big, hairy chess piece to kind of like mess with. Like what, what, you know, mission set is worthy of the fuel that, that, that we have that's precious. How do we protect it? And then, uh, and then, how do we how do we move it around to get it to where it need, needs to to be? So there's a lot of those things that are just like they're fundamentally interesting because they're a really hard problem. But like, uh, yeah, name one near peer uh, fight that's happened since before Ukraine that had involved helicopters on both sides. It's just like right. it doesn't exist, you know? Yeah, it's, and I mean the I mean the the fuel component obviously for anything aviation related or even ground related for that matter is 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 a pretty big deal. And, um, and, you know, I know the, I can't remember if it was a guard or a reserve unit out of Kentucky. We worked with them a little bit, but, you know, a big focus in aviation is, you know, identifying things just like that. Like, how do we, how do we do a jump farp? You know, that's what we refer to as how do we, how do we get a jump farp out there? Cool. We have the jump farp out there now. Um, how, how do we have a security element for that? You know, what is their protection plan? And, you know, it's interesting, um, we did it, you know, we did a, a mock long range, I'll say long range air assault um, several months ago. But something that, you know, we, we found out is, you know, you're rushing everybody out the door, we have this plan, and then we get out there. But really, when you're now sending that element out, you're even fine. if they even if they have a security element, you know, does that lowest level fueler that's driving that Hemet around this field at 2 a.m. know the parking plan. And I say that specifically because we were in a massive field in the middle of the night and the fueler couldn't find us. He had no, he was driving around the field. I mean, and this is probably a a 1500 acre, 2000 acre field. And, you know, you've got however many aircraft that we had there and you couldn't figure out how to get over the air. And it's those little things that when you're now talking these, you know, bigger, bigger scale operations of, of the dominoes that have to happen to be able to conduct them on tight timelines, it's everything down to that lowest level. And that's why you're absolutely right. We haven't solved the problem. We're still working through it. And it's, I think very much at this point, um, not a trial and error, but a trial in, you know, trial, learn from it. Cool. We fix it and we do it again. Right, right. No, yeah, I think that that throw the spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks, and then, then try again. Kind of, you know, that, that it's just a it's agile manufacturer, agile you know creation uh, like kind of mentality. Um, the uh, there was a book I read. I wish I could remember what what it was, but they they, they were talking about Clausewitz like uh, fog, fear, friction, and fatigue, and then he talked about how like friction. He, he said the, the best way I can explain friction is by telling you a story. And he was like a a, a armor is ABCT commander, and he's about to roll out at NTC, and he's everybody's all gung ho ready to go. And he thought it was have a great great time. His tracks first one out and throws a track like and then clogs the whole like lineup. And uh, so then it was this game of like, okay, well, how do we get the track back on the on 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 the tank or get it out of the way? And it's like those little things that um, those CTC rotations kind of like bring to light because it's the only time you ever get to have like everybody come together and 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 do the thing to see what what kind of starts to fall apart, which kind of takes us back to training with you guys on a, on a regular basis. Because if we don't do it on a regular basis, if we don't you know throw the spaghetti at the wall, then we don't get to uh, you know, to see it. At least that's kind of what I'm picking up from uh, from what what you're kind of like you know uh, throwing down there. So let, let's uh, let's transition to. Uh, to the, the crashes like so um 
every, I think everybody's seen headlines about two big crashes that, that have happened over the past couple of months. Um, but I don't think that everybody really understands like what happened. They just see, see that there were some crashes and that's it. And then I know that for, like, you know, the, the army wide had a, a, a safety standout because we published a, an article uh, in our brigade substack on aviation the day that they announced the stand down. And so uh, there's, there were comments made about that. It was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, can you like just give us a, a, an overview on like kind of what happened uh, with those? I mean, nobody knows. Uh, they're going to be going through an investigation process for quite some time. Um, so I'm in no place to actually speak on um, what happened with any of those three mishaps um, out of, you know, the rumor mills are always open and that kind of stuff but out of respect for the families and right, right. Um, the process. I'd prefer not to speak on, you know, that type of stuff on a forum like this. Um, what I will say is that, you know, and this is great because now that I'm not in the army and stuff anymore, I have no problem calling people out and talking about some stuff that I think senior leadership needs to address. Um, at the end of the day, and I'm not saying that this is the result for any of these mishaps, because again, I don't, I don't know what exactly is going right, on here, right. but it is a common concern um, with regards to the importance of what people are doing with their time. Um, the army has changed so much, even for like the short eight to 10 year period that I was on there with like, what are we focused on? Because certain professions like aviation require, Nick already talked on this earlier in this episode, an immense amount of proficiency. And so if my instructor pilots and my AMSOs and stuff are not focused on honing their craft, studying the appropriate material, teaching the guys beneath them that type of material, going out and training and exercising and stuff because they have to go to meetings and they have to go do whatever training and stuff that's pulling away from your, you can potentially start seeing a dip in proficiency, which could then matriculate into more type of error prone incidents. And again, I'm not saying that that's what caused this, but I know that if you talk down to the lower level and many aviation organizations, it's a very big concern. Um, another concern is antiquated equipment um, that we talked about a little bit earlier on this episode too. I mean, we still have organizations flying Alpha and Lima model Blackhawks. Then for our non-aviation folks, those are like 70s era, 1970s era aircraft. Right. It's 2023. Um, you know, our pilots and crew members should have access to technology that enables them to do their job safer. Um, you know, military flying is, can be a lot different than the typical civilian flying of going from point A to point B. Obviously there is FAA standards and stuff that you have to meet, but we often have a lot more on our plate, especially when you're flying multi-ship and you're managing time on target and talking internally and doing a lot of other things that can potentially pull you away from just being a pilot and being situationally aware and there are tools that are accessible and make your life a little bit easier sometimes. And that can help you get out of sticky situations if something were to happen that some of our air crew and pilots in the Army have and others do not. Um, and that's kind of a frustrating thing to see is, is the technology disparity between our fleet. Because you can look at like a Mike model Blackhawk that has different axes that you can couple up to and go around features and stuff all the way down to an alpha model where... The guys don't even want to get up into the clouds because last time they flew, their GPS just went 30 degrees off. And so if they can't trust their instruments, if I go inadvertent, the first step I'm supposed to do is come inside and trust my instruments. But if I don't trust my instruments, how do I know what the hell's going on? Right. That's just kind of like a soapbox rant of like the army procurement process and like investing in our fleet 
all that kind of stuff. I mean, I could go down a, a rabbit hole for that kind of stuff for forever. Um, but those are just like concerns that I see with regards to prioritizing. You want to talk about like leadership and people, treat your people like people, not like equipment, you know, invest in them, get everybody the technology that they need. If you're in a leadership position, protect your people so that they can go out and fly and fix aircraft and you go do all the shitty stuff or get yelled at for it or whatever, because that's how you have a safe organization that's actually going to be mission effective too. Because at the end of the day, once you go down range, we don't give a shit about the slides and the green blocks and stuff. We give a shit about getting people from A to B and getting people back home safely. And if you're not spending your time training that, then like, what exactly would you say you do here if you want to throw in the office space? So, um, I think there's another critical component too to to Spencer's point with that is that aviation right now, um, and and again, I'm no longer I'm no longer in, um, but we're probably and I, I don't know the exact number, but. Over the last several years, I would say probably five or six years, there's been a massive exodus of pilots for whatever reason, whether it's you know quality of life or they want to pursue other aviation opportunities, whether that's airlines or EMS or whatever. But also too, there's you know just been a lot of people who said, "I'm at my 20 and I'm getting out." And then as this happened, the branch, you know, the aviation branch started trying to work through the problem of, okay, well, we're losing, we're losing in a massive amount of pilots. How do we fix it? So, you know, they played around with different ideas, everything from changing the ad. So, and to, you know, to what this whole process looked like. Um, I don't really think that fixed the problem, at least at the unit side, we're still, you know, understaffed, everybody's task saturated. And, and not to say that that is aviation centric, because I think that that's probably across, across the army. I mean, it's all over the news, you know, you've kind of mentioned, right. Some stuff. I mean, it's no, it's no secret that the army's recruitment numbers are, you know, significantly low. All of that stuff plays into an exhausted force. And so what happens is that um, because, you know, everybody's, everybody's facing, you know, the manning issues, commanders tend to rely on people who, and it's not just commanders, it's, it's leaders in general and people, we rely on people who we know are going to get the job done. And so what ends up happening and it's any community, if you're in that leadership role and you know that you need something done, you go to those specific people. So the result of that is now you've got people who are just completely exhausted. Um, and couple that with we're at quote unquote peacetime. So now how do we, how do we justify, especially for senior leaders, I would say, take a solid look at how you're justifying an OER, right? Are we, are we filling in white space with exercises to, you know, be able to, uh, to enumerate ourselves amongst our peers, or are we allowing our people to do meaningful training? And I think that um, a lot of times they mistake the two for the same thing, because I think there are countless times, especially in the last couple of years that we've gone and done these training events or exercises that we never got any input into. And that's why when you asked me that question earlier about, you know, what would we, what would that look like if we're trying to interface? That's the kind of interface that should also be happening internally in aviation and it's not. Um, And I think that all of those things coupled together make it a very dangerous concoction, you know, between, you know, antiquated equipment and exhausted force and just basically a nonstop op tempo because, one, yes, there is absolutely the need to prepare, 
but then two, we say that, but there is definitely still an underlying tone of saying, okay, well, we're not, we're not deploying to the Middle East every other year. So how do we, you know, how do we make ourselves stand right. out? Right, right. No, yeah, the, uh, the keep the main thing, the main thing and not be distracted, but like, like kind of like frivolous training definitely hits home. And that's something that uh, like, I, my old battalion commander used to uh, the harp on that all, all the time, um, and sometimes to his detriment. But um, like you know, that's kind of w- what it would take sometimes to uh, to make sure that we didn't get distracted with things that we shouldn't be distracted with, and, and that we kind of like kept our eye on, on the ball for sure. So I, that definitely uh, makes a lot of sense. And the uh, the, uh, the experience portion, uh, I think, across the the, the army is going to be something we have to contend with. I, I read a, a stat just uh, I think yesterday. That said that about 20% of the army has actual combat experience at this point, and it's it's falling every single day uh, as people retire. I had a, a good friend of mine who was we were uh, bunkmates in AIT in 2005, and he's a uh, um, he he he's like, hey, I just dropped my retirement packet or whatever, and I, I was like, really? I I, I, just, I don't feel like I'm old enough to really kind of get to that point where like I could be retiring, but you know, I had done two different deployments uh, in aviation. He'd done five. Of course, he stayed aviation the whole time. And so you're, you're seeing a lot of that, that experience just kind of like walk out the door. And and what do you, you can't replace that without like, you know, another GWAT, which we don't want. Um, so that, that's kind of interesting. I know y'all are doing a lot of, of uh, nonprofit work uh, for the families of those crashes. Can you speak to that and tell us about it? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... Do you want to know just about like what we're doing with the recent ones or like the origin story of the foundation or a, whatever you feel like is, is, uh, is relevant, man. You yeah. That. I mean, I'd like to take the opportunity to raise awareness for the foundation since we've been given the platform. Um, so I mentioned that I did a, a gig with seventh group um, and a staff position before I left the army and Brett, the other bro Italian co-founder actually did the same out at Bragg um, and during my short stint there, we still had combat operations going on in Afghanistan, and we lost a couple of people in my battalion. Um, and so working in the operation, so I was able to witness firsthand what that casualty process looks like. Um, and one of the first things that happened was, um, you know, the S3 was like, hey, you get on the phone with the Green Bray Foundation. Um, because they were worried about getting people's family members to dignify transfers and all that kind of stuff and how they were going to pay for it and everything. It was like, get on the phone with the Green Beret Foundation and see where they can step in and support. And that was interesting. I, at that time, I'd never heard the Green Beret Foundation. That was new to me. Um, and so that was just, I just found it interesting. I'm a curious person. So I was like, cool. I did some research on that organization and what all they did. Um Parallel to that, there was an individual in the unit um, who has a t-shirt company in the Crestview area that caters towards the SF guys. He does like unit apparel and stuff for them. I think, I believe it's called Red 70s. I forget his name. Um, Great dude, but he did a memorial t-shirt honoring um, Lou and I, I, pains me, but I forget the other guy's name. Um, And it was, you know, he, he ran it for like, a couple of weeks or whatever. And then they, that, that company gave the profits of that to their spouses to help with whatever else. I mean, it's a financially troubling time. In many cases, you just lost the primary breadwinner in the house. I'm not trying to generalize here, but yeah, a, yeah. a lot of cases it is. And then you have all the travel and childcare 
and boarding of dogs and all the other stuff that can go alongside with it. And it, it can be a lot on top of already trying to process the loss of, you know, a spouse or a son or a daughter or friend or whatever. So I thought that was really cool um, that he was sort of leveraging his company to do some good. And um, this was in August of 2019. In September of 2019, I think on the 29th, I might have the date off a little bit. End of September, um, there was a 60 mishap down uh, in Fort Polk and one pilot, Major Trevor, Trevor Joseph, uh, did not make it home. So I talked to Brett and was like, hey, I just saw this guy who has t-shirt stuff for a different community, kind of like we do, like do some good stuff for families that were affected. Maybe we could try and do something like this for their family. And uh, yeah, let's try it out. So we did a t-shirt design and um, hoped to raise, you know, a thousand dollars or whatever, and ended up more than 10 xing that. Um, and so it sort of validated the impact in the community aspect. If you want to trace back to like a communal or a tribal um, capability that social media has yeah. that it validated that. Um, and so we were able to, to give that money to Aaron. Um, and as you've noticed this year and since 2019, since we've been doing this, these things tend to happen in batches for whatever reason. Uh, I can't think of during that time frame there being one mishap. It's always in groups of two or three. Yeah. I don't know why that is. I mean, there may be no reasoning to it, but it's just unfortunately the nature of the beast. And so there were a couple more things, a couple more mishaps that happened that year. And, um, you know, we did some research and stuff and I couldn't find any organization like the Greenbury Foundation that did any sort of casualty assistance for Green Army Aviation. The Night Stalkers have their own thing, but that's in a, their own elite community and they, they've got their own thing going on. Um, sorry for that. Um, so I, you know, I, I talked to a couple people and Brett being one of them, obviously, and my next door neighbor at the time was a Marine Corps Cobra pilot and a guy that he used to fly with out in San Diego um, had started the Wingman Foundation and they do casualty assistance for naval aviation. So Navy, Marine Corps and Coast Guard, if a helicopter or an aircraft goes down and somebody doesn't make it back, they provide support in various different forms. And he was able to make a connection for me. And I got on the phone and talked to him for like two or three hours and came off the phone call of basically deciding like, this is something that we have to do because we had a lot of people say not to do it. Um, and I think you find that a lot in all sorts of, if you want to go do something different, people are always quick to say, ah, you can't do that. You see in the army all the time, all the hey, time. Hey, do you think we can get ammo for this? No, 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 no. You can't do that. It's like, yeah. why? Um, and so yep. we, we got a lot of, oh, nonprofit spaces, it's oversaturated, just have somebody else do it. And I was like, I mean, yeah, there's a ton of military organizations, but nobody is doing anything for army aviation. Why shouldn't it be us? And so we kind of said to you yep. on that and leverage some connections we had. And, um, that was what started the nonprofit. So, you know, it, it took a while or whatever, but we got legalized and incorporated, um, and 501c3 status. And I think that was officially, uh, June of 2020. So we had kind of been operating some nonprofit type stuff before then, but not necessarily having the tax exempt status. Doesn't matter. The mission never really changed, but now we actually have the 501c3. Um, and I think there can be a little bit of confusion between the two. They are, there's two separate entities. Obviously, it shares the name Brotalian because it's the same individuals that run the for profit that also volunteer their time to run the nonprofit. So 
that's sort of a long-winded story on the origin story of the Blue Skies Foundation. We're an all-volunteer organization um, that provides assistance um, to the Army Asian community after Class A mishaps. So um, no, National Guard, Reserve, active duty, it doesn't matter which component. Um, if a helicopter or airplane goes down and somebody doesn't make it home, we step in and we provide immediate casualty assistance via a $2,500 check or deposit, whatever method works best for that family to help with some of those aforementioned um, expenses that can occur like lodging and travel and childcare and et cetera. And then we fundraise on behalf of that family for one month, essentially about a one month period um, from the date of the mishap and then grant all that money to the families. So um, that's what we do. We're, again, we're a junior organization. We've only been around for a couple of years, um, but we've grown a lot and it's a very rewarding thing to do, especially, you know, for myself, not being involved in the community anymore, being able to give back to it is, uh, is a special thing because, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for that community and the people that I met in it. So it's, you know, it's our way to leverage um, the tribe that we've built for good, essentially. Yeah. No, yeah, I think the, yeah. something super cool about the the military is that you don't see people leaving Walmart and, and making Walmart foundations, but you do see people leaving, you know, uh, uh, the, the military and then making various yeah. foundations to help people back in, in the military. So it, despite it, all of its, uh, you know, all the struggles that, that we have and all the gripes that, that, we, that we may have, there's still like something really, really positive uh, in that for sure. I think it's super, super cool that, you, that, that you're doing that. Um, how can the, how can people like find you, connect you, help, uh, help, you know, uh, get involved? Yeah. Um, I apologize for the URL. I know Nick loves to give me a hard time about this. It's, <laughs> it's the bro Italian blue skies foundation.org. So <laughs> when you're typing it out, it can be a bit of a beast. Um, we're on all social media platforms. So if you go to Instagram and you go to, I believe it's, um, blue underscore sky underscore foundation. Um, you can find us there. We have a link tree that can take you right to the website um, or directly to donation links for the current fundraiser for the Arctic dust off mishap that went down earlier out in Alaska. Uh, quick links to Moral Apparel, um, which is a method of fundraising for those families that we utilize Brotalian putting together. You can also go to Brotalian um, and in the link tree, there will be a link to the Blue Skies Foundation in there as well, if that's easier than typing in. 40 different words in your uh, browser of choice. Um, but yeah, again, it's the blue, the Brotalian blue skies foundation.org. Um, if you have questions, there's a contact form on there. You can reach out to our team. Somebody will respond probably will be me. Um, we're very transparent. All of our financials are posted on there. determination letter, things like that. Um, we take transparency very seriously and want to ensure that like our donors understand where their money is going and, you know, our mission set. So always happy to answer questions for people that are stumbling upon us and wondering what it is that we do. We hope that it's very evident, uh, you know, on the website and stuff, but always happy to answer questions um, and explain Ignazium in detail what it is um, that we are accomplishing and plan to accomplish. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. It's uh, like, you know, as a chaplain, like uh, they, they give us like a, we're supposed to uh, nurture the living, uh, care for the wounded and, and, and honor the fallen. And so uh, it it's nice to be able to take this platform and try to like uh, 
help out people that are, that are you know doing at least uh, you know uh, some really good work uh, on the the honor of the fallen uh, type thing. And I, I do think that you know like honoring somebody is not necessarily just memorializing them, but like you know jumping in and, and helping out people that that are uh, you know near and dear to them whenever uh, the times get hard like that. So absolutely, yeah. Well, guys, uh, thank you so much for for being on. Uh, I know we're, we're right at about an hour. I don't want to uh, you know mess up your schedules any more than, than we already already had. Uh, uh, but I, I appreciate you uh, and, and the information, especially uh, giving our guys a perspective on what it what an aviation unit is looking for in, in scheduling training. Because I'm pretty sure that we need to to incorporate you guys as much as we possibly can going forward. Yeah, man. Um, <laughs> you may kill me for saying this, but you can always DM the Brotalian Instagram page and uh, we can potentially connect you with people too. Like, you know, Hey, my name's, you know, LT so-and-so I'm at this military installation or this guard unit. And like, we were having difficulty getting contact information for aviation. Like part of what we do is liaise and connect people um, and, you know, bear with the response time because we get a ton of DMs and, and I say, we Brett manages it all. Um, he will get back to you at some point, but you know, anything that we can do to help the, help the, uh, community out. And if, if that's going to potentially get better training value down to like, you know, a company in platoon level for aviation, happy to connect people, um, with the right folks. So you may help, you may hate yourself for saying that. Cause like, I know like, our guys are, they have a flair for coming up with some ridiculous, uh, things. So, so you might get a lot of DMs after this, uh, this goes off. Yeah, we'll see. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, uh, thanks again for giving us the opportunity to come on and talk about the foundation. Um, it's near and dear to our hearts and it's the ultimate purpose for everybody involved, um, in Brotalian. So anything we can do to promote it is always greatly appreciated. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Hey, thanks, thanks so much. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us.